the world we know is changing. I'm Moira Gunn, and welcome to Biotech Nation. Let's say we were born with a malfunctioning gene. How about adding some new DNA? And what if you don't want the DNA you added to function anymore? Mira GTX has been working on both. I speak with Dr. Zandi Forbes, its president and CEO. We go into depth on retinitis pigmentosa and Parkinson's, just two of their programs. And now Zandi, that would be Dr. Alexandria Forbes. Zandi, welcome to Biotech Nation. Thank you, Moira. Thank you for inviting me. Now, I think in general, we can all understand that we're beginning to have the technology to engineer DNA gene sequences, which when in our bodies will produce a protein that does something. It could be a a working protein, which replaces a defective one, or it could be a protein, which is essentially a drug, which treats a condition. Now, you've been working on this in a number of disease conditions, and your first area of focus was in the eye, and uh, several of your conditions are inherited, and others are age-related, such as wet macular degeneration. And while everyone is always interested in the results of aging, since we're all aging, I'm going to ask you about the inherited eye diseases because Johnson & Johnson, one of the largest pharmaceutical and medical device companies in the world, they've partnered with you and they're partnering with you for all inherited eye diseases, some of the ones you haven't even seen yet. Oh, we want them, all the inherited eye diseases. So this tells me you're, you're on to something here. Let's talk about your most advanced uh, treatment in the inherited eye disease area, which is now entering phase three, uh, the last of the phase one, two, three clinical trials before approval. And that's RPGR, retinitis pigmentosa. What is that? So retinitis pigmentosa, as you mentioned, is an inherited disease. It is found in men. It's X-linked. And it results in irreversible blindness that occurs gradually over the life of these young men. So when they're in their early teens to mid-20s, they start not being able to see in the dark, then in dimmer light, and then gradually their vision disappears from the outside in, they get tunnel vision, and by the time they're in their 30s or 40s, they tend to go completely blind. So there's nothing you can do about this disease, They lack one particular functioning gene. And our treatment in collaboration with Johnson & Johnson, as you said, replaces that missing gene with a good copy that then makes the protein that otherwise missing prevents them from seeing. Now, you're entering phase three, the last phase, as I said, but let's go back to phase two. How many subjects did you test? What did, how, for how long? What did they go through? Tell us about that. So the study overall treated 45 uh, subjects, and this was initially a dose 
finding study. So we tried a number of doses and it was then the primary purpose of this study was to see how safe this treatment was. So all the people treated were only treated in one eye. And so each patient had one eye treated, the gene, the therapy was injected into the back of that patient's eye, and then they went away and every several months at specific time points, they would come back and have all different measures of their vision assessed. So we could see not only if this was safe, if maybe this treatment in their one eye had actually improved different aspects of vision. And what did you find with the various dosages? So we found that there were two doses out of the three that we tried um, that looked like they benefited uh, those initial patients. And we expanded, they were only three and three and four in each of those dose cohorts. We expanded those doses. So we treated another 10 to 13 patients in each of those two doses. And when we looked at the data, which we released uh, in the last week, we were able to show that at least in this initial study, there seemed to be benefit in multiple aspects of those patients' vision. I mentioned that these men, that they're young men, initially have trouble being independent in the, in the dark. And uh, as children, they might start bumping into things in the dark before they go completely blind. And one of the things we saw was that in the patients that had been treated, they seemed to be able to navigate through a maze. We have a maze that assesses how they're able to behave in the dark faster than before they were treated. They reported through questionnaires that they were able to function better in dimly lit conditions. They, uh, in their reports of how they felt they'd been effective, they felt they were more independent. They could go through, you know, museums or they could now continue their work. These sorts of early reports suggest to us that indeed replacing that gene is potentially having a meaningful impact on those patients' lives. And then when we measured the sensitivity of their retina with a machine that shines light on their retina, we also showed that from the perspective of the eye, the retina seemed more sensitive. So all this information together suggests that as we go into the phase three, we have a treatment that may have a benefit in these patients who, who otherwise have no potential treatment. Now, when you say different dosages, are you talking the amount of genes that are, are inserted? What are you talking about? Yes. So when you deliver a gene therapy, you deliver a certain number of genes. So our dose is X number of genes, three times that number of genes, four times that number of genes. So it's, it's the actual number of genes in the solution that you're injecting into their eye. That's what we mean by a dose in gene therapy. 
Okay, so one of the things I liked about what you were describing is that we often say phase two, as if we give people a number of doses and then we say, oh, here's the outcome. So now we'll just do a lot more in phase three. We just give it to more people. There is this accession of tests and you're strategizing and you're looking at outcomes. How did what you learn in phase two affect what you're now going to do in phase three? How is phase three going to be different? So we have very similar groups of patients in phase three. And as such, we anticipate that the the treatment will have a similar benefit. And we are assessing, um, we're, we're doing assessments in phase three that are very similar to what we did in the phase two. However, We've had discussions with regulatory agencies in the US, all over the world, in Europe, in multiple countries, about what they would consider something that would convince the regulatory agencies that this actually has a meaningful benefit to patients. So some of the endpoints, for example, the maze that I mentioned, we've worked on lots of different aspects of that maze in discussion with regulatory agencies to produce an endpoint that really provides you a a more acceptable way of showing you've had this benefit, a clinically meaningful benefit on these patients. It's all well and good that patients telling you they can see better, but you need to have something that's measurable to to have a drug that can be approved as safe and effective. And that's what we've done between phase two and phase three. Now, you are enrolling now in phase three. Where in the world are you enrolling and how do people find out about that? So as you mentioned earlier, we are fortunate to be in a collaboration with uh, Johnson & Johnson And as a result of that collaboration, we actually have quite a large global study. So there are a number of sites in the US. Um, In addition to that, in multiple countries throughout Europe, you will be able to find, if you go to a a center that focuses on inherited retinal diseases, they, if they're not in the study, will be able to direct you to a site where you might be treated. So we have um, multiple studies in the US, multiple studies in Europe, and they gradually open over time. The European sites a bit later than the US, but they're currently enrolling. Now let's turn to another disease area you're working in, and that would be neurodegenerative diseases. And uh, I'm just going to pick Parkinson's. And it doesn't seem like there's a lot that can be done in Parkinson's. Let's talk about that. Yes. So we do have a gene therapy approach to Parkinson's. And you mentioned that there's not a lot that can be done in Parkinson's. In Parkinson's, it's driven by the loss of a transmitter, neurotransmitter called dopamine. And initially in the disease, you can replace dopamine by pills or other methods to to give you back dopamine and to help your motor function um, be normal. 
However, most people, as they progress through the disease, dopamine stops working. And in addition, side effects occur with dopamine. So once dopamine has stopped working, there are very few options. But one of the options that exists is something called deep brain stimulation. And that involves putting a wire into the brain and targeting a tiny, tiny portion in the brain that controls motor behavior. And when you put electricity there, your motor symptoms of Parkinson's fade away. So instead of using a wire and electricity, we do something very similar, but use a gene to impact that same tiny part of the brain that controls motor symptoms. So we inject a gene just into that site in the brain. So there's no wires or electricity. And that gene actually changes the circuitry of that region of the brain and allows motor symptoms to be more normal. Now, would that gene placement be permanent? Yes. So you need one injection into your brain, and that's it. And you have this little, it's sort of recircuiting that particular region, which is damaged in Parkinson's disease because of the lack of dopamine. So you no longer need that dopamine to have that correct circuitry. Now, is that phase two study enrolling or is it fully enrolled at this point? So we have one phase two study using this particular product, which is completed. And that phase two study showed a benefit which is published against a sham. So someone who didn't get the drug injected but had a surgery. We're in the situation now where we have produced at our own manufacturing facility new gene therapy. It's exactly the same drug, but it's produced in a new facility. And we will be opening a study later this year with that new material. And will that be in the UK, in the US? That will be in the US. That will be in the US. So again, Yes, it's enrolling in U.S. sites later this year. All roads lead to Mira GTX. So start there. <laughs> start looking there. Uh, but you did mention surgery. You have to inject this into the brain. And, and how, how challenging is that surgery? So it's very, very similar to deep brain stimulation. So deep brain stimulation, while it sounds complicated, involves a very well-understood surgery where you put a, not a helmet, but it's a frame and then a needle just goes into this very specific part of the brain, which many, many surgeons know how to do. And then you put a wire in there. So that's deep brain stimulation. And it's done all over America, all over the world quite frequently. So we use exactly the same type of surgery all of those deep brain stimulation surgeons know how to do, but rather than putting a wire in, we put a tiny droplet of our gene therapy and then we take the um, catheter out. So there's nothing left, there's no wires. It, it's simply the gene is there and you go home. So 
it's the same surgery, but nothing's left behind except the gene. If you happen to be one of those people with too small a dose, are you able to go in and put more? So we have done a phase two study and that followed a phase one study. And at the moment, we are treating with the dose that was found to be efficacious in the phase two, which was the highest dose. So there, there aren't multiple doses. Can you retreat? There is potential for that in the future. Uh, we have not looked at that so far and are not studying that in this particular study. Now, I have to say that uh, many people say, that's really great. You know, th these are chronic diseases that you have for life. Uh, so this is very good news moving in this direction. Um, However, I think there is uh, a worry, if you will. Why would I put new DNA in my body, you know, permanently? And what if something went wrong? How could I turn it off? Uh, I think some of your next generation research uh, answers that, right? Yes, that's, that's a very interesting question because first generation gene therapies, really, as you pointed out, you put them into the body and they actually hopefully will be active for the rest of life to treat that particular disease. But there are many ways that you could use gene therapy beneficially if you had the ability to control it. So it wasn't on all the time. And we have developed a technology where we put into the gene therapy that you described an extra little uh, sequence. And that little sequence means that our gene therapy is dormant. So it's actually not switched on. And then we can give a pill which targets that extra little sequence. And only when that pill is there, does the gene and the gene therapy switch on. So it's it's the first time you can really put a gene into the body that isn't active and then take a pill and you make it active at the right dose and the time that you want it. So without the pill, it's not on. And how do you adjust doses? The technology was designed so that the gene responds very precisely to the dose of the pill. So if you want a very small amount of protein, you take a very low dose of the pill. If you want a lot of protein, you take a much higher dose of the pill. So you can really control how much protein your gene makes by deciding what dose of pill you want to take. Now, this is clearly in development now. Where are you in that development? Do you have an initial candidate condition to work on? Where are you? So we have developed this technology independently, and we have got to the stage where we have tested quite a range of drugs, so genes that we want to activate 
in animals. And the types of drugs that we have tested, some of the drugs that are used for diabetes, uh, some of the drugs like growth hormone or insulin, these are the sorts of drugs that we've tested in animals. Other types of drugs, antibody drugs, so drugs that are used for cancer or drugs that are used for autoimmune disease, we also are able to control those sorts of drugs in mice using oral pills. So we're able at the moment, at least in mice, to dose those with both antibodies, so cancer drugs, as well as um, smaller hormones and peptides, which have to be injected into the body today. Well, Zandi, Dr. Forbes, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back and see us again. I would love to, Maura, and it was a real pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. My guest today is Dr. Alexandria Forbes. Zandi is the president and CEO of Mira GTX. Information about these and their other clinical trials, which are now enrolling, is available on their website, miragtx.com. That's Mira, M-E-I-R-A, followed by gtx.com, miragtx.com. Listen to more biotech podcasts at biotechnation.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Biotech Nation is a regular feature of the weekly public radio program, Tech Nation. Listen to the full show via podcast or on your local public radio station. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.